NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. President Biden is expected to meet with Chinese President Xi Jinping at the G20 meeting in Bali. What to expect? And the U.S. and other countries seize Russian-owned super yachts. Now taxpayers are footing the bill. Plus, we talked to legendary rapper Fat Joe about how he survived the streets and the rap game. Because of the environment, I turned into the worst bully in the world. And I did some horrible things to good and bad people that I'm not proud of. So lean back. It's Sunday, November 13th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Election results announced last night in Nevada have changed the game. Democrats will keep their majority in the Senate. NPR's Mara Liason reports. Nevada Democratic Senate incumbent Catherine Cortez Masto beat Republican challenger Adam Laxalt. That means Democrats will continue their 50-50 majority in the Senate, where according to the U.S. Constitution, the vice president breaks a tie vote. There is still one more Senate race outstanding in Georgia, where there'll be a runoff on December 6th. Also last night, Nevada Democrat Cisco Aguilar beat his Republican opponent, an election denier, for Secretary of State. That's an important position that oversees the mechanics of voting and vote counting. So far, no election deniers have won a Secretary of State's race in a battleground state. Mara Liason, NPR News, Washington. President Biden is in Bali today after leaving Cambodia, where he met with the leaders of Japan and South Korea, saying those nations and the U.S. are more aligned than ever. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports they discussed North Korea's nuclear threat. North Korea has ramped up its testing of missiles, triggering alerts and forcing some residents in South Korea and Japan to seek shelter. President Biden told Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida and South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol that it was vital that they work together. North Korea continues uh, provocation for provocative behavior. This partnership is even more important than it's ever been. The leaders raised specific concerns about the looming threat of another nuclear test. The White House has warned that if North Korea keeps going down this road, it will mean an increase in U.S. military presence in the region. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, Bali, Indonesia. In the newly liberated southern Ukrainian city of Kherson, Russian troops are gone, but their eight-month occupation has left residents in need of basics. At the same time, a return to normalcy. 200 Ukrainian police officers back on the job. They're setting up checkpoints and also working to neutralize unexploded ordnance. The British are marking Remembrance Sunday to honor the fallen of past wars. As Vicki Barker reports from London, for the first time in 70 years, a new monarch is presiding over the occasion. As Big Ben struck 11,000 stood in silence around the National War Memorial, a scene repeated every Remembrance Sunday since 1920. A sea of black coats and bright red poppies. Charles III appeared close to tears as he laid his wreath of poppies for the first time as king. Also on hand, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and his six living predecessors, the first time so many senior figures have assembled since Queen Elizabeth's funeral in September. For NPR News, I'm Vicki Barker in London. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The head of Boston's police union says contract negotiations with the mayor's office are stalled. Union head Larry Calderon tells the Boston Globe that negotiations began this summer and that the Patrolmen's Association may now seek arbitration. The mayor's office says negotiations are ongoing. During her campaign, Mayor Michelle Wu promised to enact police reforms with a new contract. Leaders of the Boston Firefighters Union plan to meet with the Massachusetts Civil Service Commission tomorrow. The union is suing Massachusetts after the state recently canceled the Boston District Chief's promotional exam that had been scheduled for later this month. Union President Sam Dillon says the decision is detrimental to public safety and inconsiderate to firefighters and their families. These Boston firefighters dedicated countless, countless hours uh, away from their away from their family, countless hours of personal time for upwards of a year and a half to prepare for these exams, uh, suddenly had the rug pulled out from underneath them. The civil service exams were suspended over a lawsuit filed by the city's police unions that claimed the tests discriminate against black and Hispanic candidates. The firefighters union claims the police lawsuit does not apply to the firefighters exam. The city of Worcester is reviewing its school safety plans. The Telegram and Gazette reports the district has hired a consulting company to audit safety procedures and review emergency response plans. District officials have reported at least two dozen emergency calls from schools this year for a wide variety of issues. Celtics coach Joe Mazzola says he's hopeful Jalen Brown will be back on the court tomorrow night. Brown sat out last night's game against the Pistons with a left knee injury. The Celtics beat the Pistons 117 to 108. Mazzola made the comments about Brown's recovery during a post-game update. The Celtics face Oklahoma City tomorrow at the Garden. Last night, the Bruins beat the Sabres 3 to 1. Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins host the Vancouver Canucks. It is 52 degrees in Boston. Some rain around today and temperatures in the mid-50s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the William T. Grant Foundation, working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. And the big news, of course, is that Democrats will hold the U.S. Senate. This after the call came in last night in a super tight race in Nevada. Senator Catherine Cortez Masto has won re-election. She was up against Republican Adam Laxalt, who had the backing of former President Donald Trump. We're joined by Senator Amy Klobuchar, Democrat of the Democrat of Minnesota. Good morning, Senator. Well, good morning, Aisha. I remember we talked last on election night, so (laughs) we'll just say a lot has happened. A a lot has happened since then. Um, So, you know, put this win in perspective. You were confident on Tuesday night, um, but Democrats have officially now held the Senate majority um, without needing to wait for that runoff in Georgia. So put that in perspective for us. Well, this was an incredible, incredible week, and a lot of it had to do with our candidates never giving up. I talked to both Mark Kelly and Catherine Cortez Masto last night, and uh, they just were, of course, exuberant, uh, but also 
just this feeling uh, they had a purpose. Uh, we had these incredible candidates who had experience, who knew how to get things done. And I think one of the reasons we won, uh, in the words of Senator Schumer, uh, the reason that there wasn't a red wave is because Democrats had a blue wave of accomplishment, and we basically defied the tides of history. Um, and it had to do with our candidates. Mm-hmm. It had to do with our purpose. I think American people understood that the effects of the pandemic were worldwide and that, yes, um, it was hard. It is hard. Senator, but we had the right solutions. Go so, ahead. Yeah, Senator, not to cut you off, but like with a win as, you know, this is a big win for Democrats. But even if, you know, Democrats win in, in Georgia, you're still going to have a slim majority in the Senate. So what is the mandate for the party? What's the big takeaway from voters? Well, we know that it's not easy for people right now. And so the number one mandate is to help people bring down costs, make sure, unlike the Republicans, uh, that we don't mess around with their Social Security and their Medicare, because some of the things Republicans said on that front, I think, really concerned the people of this country, bring down costs more on pharmaceuticals, um, do all we can to get our economy in a place that works for everyone. The second one is codify Roe v. Wade. Now, we don't know what's going to happen with the House, uh, but um, that is one of the focuses of something we'd love to get done. We don't know if the Republicans will play ball. I'd get rid of the filibuster to do it. Um, So that's something we'll see. That was a message from the voters. And the third thing is protect our democracy. Um, Their candidates, who are so extreme, so many of their election deniers uh, have lost. Um, Some of those races you don't talk about all the time on NPR or on any station. That's like the Secretary of State's race. We did um, talk about the Secretary of State race oh, we did. a you lot on NPR. Okay, yes, good. <laughs> actually. I'm very, I'm very glad. But as you know, including in my home state of Minnesota, a lot of the election deniers lost. Uh, and so that is including in states um, all across this country. So that's a very cool thing about this election. Not all of them, but a bunch of them lost. So it shows Americans care about democracy. I would love one immediately get the Electoral Count Act passed, uh, something I've been working on as chair of the Rules Committee before the end of the year, and then move into more uh, voting uh, legislation. So that's something else that we should be doing. I want to talk to you about, I mean, you said, you know, on abortion rights that you, you know, you would be willing to, to get rid of the filibuster to get that to happen. Obviously, in, in, you know, in the last term, that Democrats were not able to do that. I guess, so what would be different now? And Republicans, almost certainly, if they take the House, will not want to play ball on, on uh, abortion. So what can be done differently in about the minute we have left? Well, we have other, first of all, there's other things we can keep trying to pass to allow all kinds of things, like Catherine Cortez Masto's provision to allow people, uh, women to cross state lines to make sure they can get their health care. There are some other things we can do, but our number one focus is that. I think you just try again. Let's see after the election how they feel about that uh, when they blocked uh, the will of so many citizens of this country. You know, uh, you know, the midterms just happened last week, but there's always already serious talk of 2024. You ran for president last cycle in the 30 seconds or so we have left. Are Democrats stronger <laughs> if President Biden runs again? Are Democrats stronger if President Biden runs again? Okay. I've been very clear that I support the president. I know he has said that um, he plans to run. I know he's going to be making the final decision in the next few months. So 
Um, let's let him make the decision. I think Democrats have shown with all we have done with um, gun safety bill, with the semiconductor bill, so we make things in America again, uh, making sure we bring down costs of pharmaceuticals, finally do something about climate change. Um, that's what we did with a 50-50 Senate. And when Raphael Warnock wins his runoff, which he will on December 6th, um, we will continue working, yes, in a difficultly mm. close um, House and Senate, uh, but we've been able with the White House to get things done. So that is our plan. That's our focus. Um, and the voters voted in record numbers in midterms. They care about our democracy. They care about our country. And we're really proud. We defied the ties of history when the president's party usually loses tons of seats. Yeah, we kept you. the Senate and let's see what happens in the House. So it's a great week for democracy. Senator Amy Klobuchar, Democrat of Minnesota, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks, Aisha. Okay, so now we're going to look at those polls that you've heard so much about. Before some key races were decided, President Biden took a moment in a press conference on Wednesday to, well, bask in his party's success in the midterms. This is supposed to be a red wave. You guys, you were talking about us losing 30 to 50 seats and this was going to, no, we're, that's not going to happen. Results are still coming in on several races, but with last night's win in Nevada, Democrats have retained the majority of the Senate. Control of the House is still undecided, although Republicans have a slim edge. One thing is certain, that red wave was more of a minor spray. NPR's Domenico Montanaro has been watching the results of this year's midterm election, and he joins me now. Welcome. Hey, Aisha. So, you know, the perception going into election night was that Republicans were going to have a big night. You know, the media said that as well. Let's be clear. But that didn't happen. So were the polls just dead wrong or did people, you know, misinterpret them? Yeah, well, I always think, like I say, it's important to consider the margins of error in some of these things, have an open mind that we don't know exactly what the shape of the electorate is going to be on election day. But that said, in the Senate, the polls were actually pretty much exactly right, <laughs> especially if you take out bad polls or Republican polls that skewed some of the averages. And some of these averages include everybody. And as my grandfather used to say, what you put in is what you get out. And he used to use different words than that. And I cleaned <laughs> yeah. it up for you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. But even with those, Nevada was pretty much tied all year. Fetterman had been ahead in Pennsylvania. Um, uh, Mark Kelly was ahead in Arizona. And Georgia was basically a tie. You know, so that's played out exactly. You know, the House is a little bit of a different story. And I wouldn't say it was the polls that were wrong. It was how some analysts and parties in some places ran with a narrative that Republicans had the momentum but didn't include proper caveats about what might happen on Election Day. But no one, I have to say, was predicting a 30 to 50 seat pickup for Republicans like President Biden was talking about there. <laughs> that's that's really a straw man. You know, the only people saying that perhaps were overly exuberant Republicans, perhaps people who didn't know better. Um, the Cook Political Report had their estimate at 12 to 25. Republicans right now are at plus eight. That's on the low end of that estimate. But a few things, not all the races are called. Uh, there were And there were a ton of very, very close races within a few points. If they tip the other direction, they'd be right in that range. Uh, so we've gotten very used to having wave elections in the past few cycles, but this year doesn't seem to have worked that way. Like, what was different? 
clearly three things. The Dobbs decision that overturned Roe, uh, some very good Democratic candidates in the House, as, as Senator Klobuchar was talking about, who held up very well, and the types of extreme candidates Republicans put up in many places. And I think they tie together. You know, a big message in this election was that people were saying they don't want extreme. You know, the court's decision was so out of step with the rest of the country, and it happened because Donald Trump was able to appoint three conservative justices to the court. It was a political a political earthquake, really. It fired up voters left and center and some on the center right. Uh, you know, thought that they that the court had gone too far and the Republicans had gone too far. We saw, for example, in Arizona, exit polls showed 40% of voters said they were angry about the road decision, and anger is a huge motivator. The numbers were similar in Pennsylvania and Nevada, and there's going to have to be clearly a reckoning within the Republican Party because Trump's politics just do not hold up well in purple states and purple districts. You know, in, in the about a minute we have left, I, I know you are still looking at data from these elections, but is there something else that you are seeing that has surprised you um, about what voters did this cycle? Well, two different sort of things. Florida, that it went so quickly for Republicans, for Ron DeSantis, for example, the governor there up for re-election. Florida just might not be a swing state anymore. Uh, also, less talked about the third congressional district in Washington state, a Republican Jamie Herrera Butler had held this seat, but she voted for Trump's impeachment and was ousted by the right. The irony that they had to, that they ousted her because she impeached Trump and now a Democrat has taken over that seat, indicative of the broader message in this election. That's NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Thank you so much, Domenico. You're welcome. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Your mobile phone is a radio on the go. Listen on the WBUR mobile app wherever you are and stay informed about all the day's news. It's 52 degrees in Boston. Some rain around temperatures today in the mid-50s. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. H&H, the Handlin Hyden Society, with The Marriage of Figaro, Mozart's greatest comedy, November 17th and 18th at Symphony Hall, HandlinHyden.org. And Rhodes Scholar, Creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. I'm Amy Held with these headlines. The incumbent Democratic senator's win in Nevada has ensured her party will retain its Senate majority. Democrats now have 50 seats, giving them control with the vice president's tie-breaking vote. Just one Senate race remains open next month's runoff in Georgia. And on the House side, 20 seats are uncalled, leaving the party in control unknown. 
At least six people are dead in Texas after two historic military aircraft collided during a Dallas air show yesterday. The National Transportation Safety Board is investigating. And in Istanbul, an explosion has gone off in the city's main pedestrian thoroughfare. The governor there says people were killed. Video shows some injured and others fleeing the scene. Amy Held, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Morgan Stanley with their podcast, Thoughts on the Market, offering concise takes on current events and their implications for financial markets. Three minutes an episode, five times a week. Thoughts on the Market. And from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. President Biden will meet tomorrow with China's Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the G20 summit in Indonesia. The high-stakes meeting is months in the making and comes as relations between the two superpowers have soured. Here with us now is NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez, who is traveling with the president. Good morning, Franco. Good morning, Aisha. So Presidents Biden and Xi have spoken many times going back to the Obama administration, but this will be their first time meeting in person since Biden became president. What are the objectives here? Yeah, the two have spoken several times since Biden took office as well, virtually, of course, but it hasn't actually helped resolve some of the big differences that they have over trade, Russia's war in Ukraine, and particularly Taiwan. As we've said before, Biden puts a high premium on face-to-face diplomacy, and the White House is hoping if they can get them in a room together, they can find some level of understanding and soften that intensity. Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, tells reporters aboard Air Force One that it's a chance to bring the conversation to a different strategic level. He'll have that opportunity to sit, be totally straightforward and direct, and to hear President Xi be totally straightforward and direct in return, and try to come out of that meeting with a better understanding and a way to responsibly manage this relationship and the competition between the U.S. and the PRC. Now, Aisha, he expects the conversation to be about two hours, but says not to expect any significant changes in the relationship. He does believe, though, that there will be important clarifications made, as he put it, a sharpening of Beijing's perspective, as well as better understanding of the U.S. position. So much of these tensions relate to Taiwan. How will that come up in these conversations? it's gonna be a key part of the discussions. President Biden says he won't make any concessions over US support for Taiwan, and that's not necessarily gonna go over well. China considers the island part of its territory and has been threatening to forcibly take control of the island. The U.S. maintains diplomatic relations with China, but the U.S. also has an unofficial relationship with Taiwan. And Biden has repeatedly suggested that the U.S. will defend Taiwan if attacked by China. Beijing was particularly outraged over a visit this summer to Taiwan by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And I'll just add that the last time the two leaders spoke ahead of the Pelosi visit, she warned Biden that, quote, 
those who play with fire will perish by it. It's hard to imagine tensions getting any higher between the two leaders. So what can they reasonably, reasonably accomplish? Right. I mean, there are plenty of reasons for skepticism. I spoke with Bonnie Glazer, who is the director of the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. She says it's going to be difficult for Biden to make significant inroads with Beijing. They haven't shown any willingness to do anything with this administration, and in part because they think this administration is implacably hostile toward them. Now, the White House is certainly trying to keep expectations low as well. Several officials have told us reporters not to expect any joint statements to come out of the meetings or any so-called deliverables. In the about 30 seconds we'll have, we'll have left, you know, Biden did better than expected in the midterm. She was also appointed to a third term. How does the domestic politics in both countries impact the discussions? You know, it gives them both more confidence. There were concerns that she would have the upper hand, but that's not the case so much anymore. You know, another point that Jake Sullivan made is that because of how she has consolidated his power, the White House really sees him as the only one in Beijing who has any real authority to make decisions. That's why the meeting is so important. The White House wants to stop the downward spiral in the relationship and find some common areas where they can work together, such as climate and Mm -hmm. containing the threat posed against North Korea by North Korea. That's White House correspondent Franco Ordonez. Thank you so much. Thanks, Aisha. One of the midterm races called in Nevada is a ballot initiative that moves the state another step closer to ranked choice voting. That's where you don't just vote for one candidate for one position, but a second or third choice as well. Voters in two states, Maine and Alaska, already vote that way. Nevada would be the biggest state yet to use ranked choice voting. Jessica Taylor is an editor at the Cook Political Report, and she joins us now. Welcome to the program. Hey, Aisha. So Nevada voters will have to confirm this amendment to their constitution in 2024. And if they do, it would take effect in 2026. At that point, if that happens, how would you win? It would be the person who's chosen as first the most. Is that how you would win? Am I thinking about that correctly? No, so the ranked choice only goes into effect if no candidate gets a majority of the vote. So say you have candidates that finish at you know, 45, 42, Uh the lowest candidate then gets knocked off. And then the second place votes for each of the remaining candidates are then allocated. So what are the pros and cons? Well, one reason I think this is an interesting model is just simply because as our states have gotten, and especially our congressional districts have gotten more polarized, fewer number of people are picking the winners because winners are chosen in primaries. So Mm. I look at, you know, I'm from East Tennessee, Tennessee's first district. And in 2020, we had an open seat for the first time in several years. 16 candidates ran in that primary. And the winner actually only ended up getting less than 20% of the vote. And that's a heavily Republican district. So winning the primary is tantamount to winning the general election. Now, all voters could vote in that, but still you end up with someone who was elected by a very small plurality ending up going to the general election. So what are the negatives? What's the argument against ranked choice voting? 
Well, then you would have voters that could meddle in either in different primaries. They're going to say, well, Democrats are just going to get behind this candidate because they want a weaker candidate in a way. It would really sort of erode how powerful the parties are. Would there still be primaries or would essentially there wouldn't be a primary because everyone can run in the main election and then everyone would just rank choice them? Is that how that would work? No, you still have a primary that happens first. And at least with Alaska and Nevada here, if it ends up passing again in two years, they've combined sort of this jungle primary in a way with the runoff election. Um, That jungle primary, that all-party primary, is what California already does. So the top two candidates, regardless of party, advance to the November general election. Okay, okay. So you could end up where... You have three Republicans, two Democrats, or whatever, like a mix of people on the ballot. Yes, and that's what happened in the Alaska House special election earlier this year. Sarah Palin, of course, the most notable name there, running against uh, Nick Begich. He's a Republican, but his family was a prominent Democratic family in the state. And then you had Mary Patola, a more centrist Democrat, an Alaska native, And while Palin finished first, she did not get a majority of the vote. Begich's voters then were reallocated, and many of them, because they did not like Palin, voted for Patola, and she ended up winning. Okay, so now I think I'm I'm getting a better understanding of this. Uh, The Senate race in Nevada was a nail-biter. The Associated Press says Republican challenger Adam Laxalt can't catch up to Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, so she's been reelected. But what would that race have looked like under ranked choice voting? So Laxalt had a more conservative challenger that uh, ran against him and sort of picked up late steam, but it wasn't enough. If this had been in effect, then he could have gone to the general election and it actually could have eroded Laxalt's support and split the vote. And then how would his votes have been reallocated? So we can't really tell, but the goal then becomes to not just get voters to rank you first, but you have to make an appeal to, okay, you may like this candidate, but like, let me be your second choice in a way. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I'm asked a lot when I'm speaking and traveling and talking to groups about what can we do about the partisanship in our politics. And I point to these reforms in Maine, in Alaska, and in Nevada, if this passes a second time, as one way that sort of could decrease the political fever. That's Jessica Taylor of the Cook Political Report. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Aisha. Kids around the world are feeling the effects of global warming. The United Nations estimates that about 1 billion children are at extreme risk because of climate change. And they're trying to make sense of a future where risks are the norm. NPR's climate team recently visited a school that is on the front lines of climate change in the Himalayan mountains. Here's reporter Rebecca Hersher. It's never fully quiet at the Rowaling Sangang Choling Monastery School. There is always, always the sound of water. The Rowaling River starts just a few miles upstream of here, where multiple massive glaciers are melting. On the river's bank next to the school is a path. It's a two-day walk to the closest road if you're moving fast. 
and behind the school is a steep, rocky mountainside, shooting up thousands of feet to peaks that are among the tallest in the world, and which, today, have just a dusting of snow. 42-year-old Bolendra Acharya has taught at the school for over a decade. As we talked, the students were playing volleyball as the sun dipped behind the mountains. We teach a wide variety of subjects here. Math, science, history, English. Plus religious training. This is a Buddhist monastery school for boys. He explains that the students here are training to be lamas, spiritual leaders who will eventually be expected to help the people who live in the valley make sense of what's happening in this rapidly changing area. Global warming is affecting high mountain areas profoundly. Acharya has witnessed it firsthand. I'm not just a teacher at this school. I'm a local of this area. And I've witnessed a lot of changes in my lifetime. For example, he says, when he was a child, the mountains were blanketed in deep snow. Now, snow only covers the very tops of many peaks. The glaciers at the top of this valley are disappearing. They've been replaced with a huge lake that could easily flood communities downstream. And most notably for him, the rain here has gotten more unpredictable, which is a problem if you live along a river. There used to be a very reliable seasonal calendar. We would know when the river would be higher or lower, so we would know when it was safe to cross. Heavy rain used to only happen in the summer. But recently, there's been less rain in the summer and sometimes heavy downpours and flooding at other times of year. Now, it seems like at any time it could just sweep us away. There is a kind of fear among us. Anything could happen. The students feel the changes, too, although they seem less alarmed and more curious. Mm, hello, my name is Ming Matamang. Now, I'm 18 years old. Tamang is almost ready to graduate. And he says he's noticed the weather changing, and he's heard rumors that someday there could be a big flood here. Which is true. This valley is at high risk from flooding because of climate change. I ask him what else he knows about global warming. Need a little bit. No. A little bit? Yeah. He continues, speaking in Nepali, that he'd like to know more. I want to learn more about the environment, he explains, because then maybe we can do something to make it cleaner and safer. His classmate, a quiet 14-year-old named Pravatini Sherpa, nods along next to him. He would also like to know more. Acharya is working to get newer textbooks and other teaching materials so that he can begin formally teaching students here about the causes and effects of climate change. He says it's important for them to understand why there's less snow and less ice and more variable rain and flooding. We are not the people polluting the environment. It's factories and cities, especially out in the bigger world. It's not people like us living in rural areas that are contributing to the damage of the earth. He says it's the responsibility of big countries like the U.S. to stop polluting the atmosphere with greenhouse gases. And that is what he plans to teach. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. Prakati Shahi contributed to this story.
You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Perhaps no county in America has been subjected to more election disinformation in recent years than Maricopa County, Arizona, which includes Phoenix and its surrounding areas. But those attacks appear to have sputtered this year. NPR's Kirk Sigler reports on how election officials there are confronting the lies. Maricopa County Chairman Bill Gates is the first to tell you he's in a bizarre position. The longtime Republican activist, who once even served as the Arizona State GOP's own election lawyer, is now the target of violent threats and other intimidation by far-right extremists. This isn't about partisan politics. It's not about conservative versus liberal. This is about truth versus lies. The drama began when President Biden narrowly won Maricopa County and Arizona in 2020 and continues today. Gates is incredulous that he's being attacked by members of his own party. Given my background, the years, all the things, all the Republican clubs that I started up, the things that I did to uh, make sure that there wasn't fraud going on in elections on behalf of the Republican Party. For Gates, the cascade of falsehoods has followed a similar pattern, starting with debunked claims that election officials can and should count all votes on election night. Arizona law says some early voting ballots can't be counted until the day after. Then on election day, a somewhat routine voting machine glitch that temporarily caused some ballots to be spit back out stoked more fraud claims online and at some polling places. No wonder people don't trust the system. It just adds fuel to the fire. Georgiana Hawes says her ballot was initially rejected at this Phoenix voting station, which she initially suspected was another example of possible fraud. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I just want to know my vote counts. Efforts to use the glitch to sow doubt never really took off, though, because county technocrats repeatedly went in front of TV cameras and got on social media quickly, explaining what happened and patiently answered questions. They escort news crews into this warehouse to see the ballots being dropped off by Democratic and Republican poll workers, and they stream video of ballot counting. Now, one big difference from 2020 here has been the overwhelming police presence outside the air, on the streets, and on horseback. A newly erected permanent black security fence surrounds the Maricopa Voting and Tabulation Center. It looks like a fortress, which makes Maricopa County Sheriff Paul Penzone bristled. He thinks it's not very American. This isn't reflective of that, this type of behavior where it requires basically um, making this almost a militarized zone of law enforcement to protect ballots and people and the opportunity to vote in a free and thoughtful nation. Maricopa County, which used to be solidly Republican, is shifting blue, and elections here are sometimes won by just a few thousand votes. For Supervisor Bill Gates, it's no coincidence that this is ground zero for election fraud conspiracies. There are a lot of people out there who have decided to push those lies, push that misinformation in the direction of Maricopa County elections because it is such an important, significant 62 percent of the votes in Arizona and a true, if not the, swing county in the country. Gates has been getting death threats since 2020, but he's not backing down. What really gives me energy are all these workers in here, the 3,000 workers uh, who are out here just trying to do the right thing. They've chosen to work in election administration. It's so noble, and it is so under attack. And will probably continue to be at least through 2024. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Phoenix.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. Tomorrow, voters in Falmouth will decide whether the police department must destroy any excess assault weapons. That's one of several articles to be considered at the annual fall town meeting. It's common practice by many police departments to sell used assault weapons to gun dealers. Backers of the proposed bylaw in Falmouth say it would prevent those weapons from reentering the open market. Leaders of the Boston Firefighters Union plan to meet with the Massachusetts Civil Service Commission tomorrow. The union is suing Massachusetts after the state recently canceled the Boston District Chief's promotional exam that had been scheduled for later this month. The civil service exams were suspended over a lawsuit filed by the city's police unions that claimed the tests discriminate against black and Hispanic candidates. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. Camp Oatka, Sebago Lake, Maine, a boys' camp promoting service, safety, and equality through outdoors, arts, and athletics. Book risk-free at CampOATKA.org. And Mass Poetry's Evening of Inspired Leaders, tomorrow. Inspiring words from Bill McKibben, Dr. Jennifer Childs Roshak and more with host Ruba Shanoi, masspoetry.org. MBTA officials say service is almost back to normal after shutdowns on the green and orange lines. Some passengers say their commutes aren't any faster. I don't see any, any change whatsoever. But they have noticed some improvements. Oh, I love the new cars. It's so beautiful, so neat. I'm a clean freak, so those, those are nice. Our story tomorrow on WBUR's Morning Edition. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Ferris Street in Jackson, Mississippi is similar to lots of Black-owned business sectors, It went from thriving in the 40s, 50s, and 60s to physically crumbling after segregation ended. But business leaders are trying to bring life back to this historic street. Stephen Basaha and Shalina Chotlani of the Gulf States Newsroom have the story. It's lunch hour, and scores of customers walk into the Big Apple Inn. Including us. Oh, that smell. Yeah, that smells really good. This smells like bacon. I love it. It's not bacon, but pig ears sizzling on the stove. Owner Gino Lee takes out a big floppy pig ear and cuts it in half. Normally, they'd boil these for days to make them edible. Now we pressure cook them, and when you pressure cook a pig ear, it only takes half an hour. And this is what it looks like when it's finished. Ooh, they look like pig ears. Yeah, (laughs) imagine that. These nine blocks were the rare place black residents in Jackson could freely go to numerous black-owned furniture shops, music venues, and doctor's offices. The Big Apple Inn was the place where anyone could get a hearty, affordable meal. Not just that, one of Jackson's famous NAACP leaders and martyr, 
Medgar Evers, rented an office upstairs. An activist would organize downstairs in the restaurant, making it a key site in the civil rights movement. But while Lee says the end of segregation those organizers helped usher in was a good thing, it actually led to many of Big Apple Inn's neighbors shutting down. When we were allowed to go to the white establishments to eat and trade, we stopped going to our own. Many white and black residents decided to leave the city for the suburbs, and they took their wealth with them. That left few people and tax dollars to support Ferris Street. The Big Apple Inn chose to stay on Ferris Street to preserve its history, and it's why many people still come here. At one point, Lee tried becoming more modern, he replaced the building's wood-paneled walls with stainless steel. Businessmen plummeted. <laughs> Business went straight down to flat zero because people wanted the nostalgia of the old place. They quickly put those paint-chipped walls back up. Stephen, Lee says the Big Apple in today might not be thriving, but it is certainly surviving. Yeah, though you don't have to go far to find one that is thriving. Seven years ago, John Tier opened up Johnny T's Bistro and Blues one block up. Tier wanted to prove that it was possible for a new business to succeed on Ferris Street. This building here, prior to me getting here, probably had the worst stigma in the city. That wasn't always the case. In the 40s, this building was known as the Crystal Palace, a place where famous black talent like Sammy Davis Jr. came to play. Since then, the building had changed hands and fell into neglect while earning a bad reputation. Tier spent years fixing up the club. Now, the building's reputation and business have turned around. And even during COVID, when people went out of business, every year our numbers are up. Johnny T's is now one of the jewels of Ferris Street. Walking up the stairs, patrons can hear lively music, see a stage for dancing, and a well-stocked bar. Sometimes that's a shock, too, for someone that drives down Ferris Street. They're like, man, look at this area. And then they come inside, they say, oh. And then they find out that you had this wide range of spirits. I mean, we got bottles that cost 6000 5000 4000 other cities are investing to revitalize their own historic black business districts, places like Birmingham's 4th Avenue and Atlanta's West Side neighborhoods. Yeah, but replicating Tier's success is not that easy. Yeah, that's true, and not a lot of people have the money to do that or are up for taking that big a risk. But just down the street, there is a family that did exactly that. I can tell you guys that I didn't think so on paper that it was going to make any sense. Yasmin, Gabrielle, and her family bought a building up the block in 2020 to bring something entirely new to Ferris Street, a health food store and a vegan cafe. The narrative normally is that people that look like us don't do this. You're going to get things that are created from nuts and grains, um, lima beans, you're going to get uh, collard greens, you're going to get turnip greens. And so we're just trying to make sure that people can realize that it's not just that rich white guy who can do yoga. While one half of Ferris Street is still mostly empty lots and hollowed out buildings, the other half is growing. Gabrielle went from renting to owning the building, from just the health food store to adding on the cafe. And now they're working on opening up a grocery store, something long missing from the greater Ferris Street area. Three years later, two kids later, a whole other restaurant, and we're expanding very, very quickly. For so long, many in this community have seen Ferris Street as a failed Black-owned business district. But black business owners are working to make sure that's not the end of Ferris Street's story. For NPR News, I'm Shalina Chatlani. And I'm Stephen Basaha in Jackson, Mississippi. And Kobe Vance of Mississippi Public Broadcasting also contributed to this story. Bill Falls recently heard a strange squeaking sound coming from an airplane at the Hickory Aviation Museum in North Carolina. He's a doctor and veteran who also volunteers there. 
I assumed it was a bird because they completely take over the plains in the, uh, the springtime. But then it dawned on me this was fall. There should not be birds nesting. So he shined the light into the shooting star, a 1950s fighter jet where the sound was coming from. And very faintly in the darkness, I could see this furry little head pop up. And as I got the light a, a little bit better on it, I could see that that was one furry head out of a pile of furry little bodies. There was a whole litter of kittens there right in the belly of the plane. Fall said their mom was Phantom, a wild cat that museum volunteers had been feeding for a couple of years. And it made a lot of sense that she chose to keep her kittens safe in the shooting star. It used to have one big engine in it, which had been removed many years ago. So she had a dry, safe space that was off the ground. Food was nearby. It was kind of a perfect setup for a mom cat if she wanted to spot. At first, there wasn't much Falls and his museum colleagues could do about the fighter jet's new tenants. Even if we wanted to get them out, it's almost impossible to get into that part of the plane to remove them. So it was really going to be up to mom to decide when it was time for the kittens to come out. Since then, Phantom has led her kittens out of the plane and they were captured and taken to the local Humane Society. The kittens are still a little spicy. They were wild cats, but they're young enough. I think there's still an excellent chance that they can be socialized and with some dedicated fostering eventually adopted out from there. In the meantime, museum employees and volunteers have been busy coming up with names for the litter. We did float a whole bunch of names. The obvious aviation theme names, you know, Goose and Maverick, and, you know, if there were a girl, maybe Amelia. Take your pick of aircraft names, you know, Prowler and Tomcat and the rest of those. That was Bill Falls, a volunteer at the Hickory Aviation Museum in North Carolina. In hip-hop, authenticity is currency. If people think you're fake, that could kill your career. Legendary rapper Fat Joe has never had that problem. With a career spanning decades, Joe has been able to parlay his street credibility into massive hits that jealous ones still envy. Now Fat Joe is telling his life story in a new memoir, The Book of Jose. His given name is Joseph Cartagena, and he joins us now from New Jersey. Welcome to the program. Hey, thank you for having me. <laughs> so, like, in the book, you describe in detail growing up in the Forest Houses projects in the Bronx, you know, the, you described coming up through the crack epidemic in the 80s. It was rough. Can you talk about, like, what it was like growing up there? Man, it was beautiful at the beginning, and then drugs just came into our, our neighborhood, and so the way crack started, it was a high-end drug. So they would be in the clubs and they would sprinkle the crack in the weed. Mm. They would call it woolers. So they got hooked on that crack. I seen guys who used to be the flyest guys in the world, and three weeks later, they'd be looking homeless. I'm reading about you growing up, and you said you got bullied and beat up a lot growing up. It's sad, man. They would jump me every day for no reason. There was no reason. Horrible. Just imagine going to school every single day and the girls in the typing class would be, Joey, they're waiting for you to beat you up. But then it switched, right? Because you went from 
being bullied. What happened to, to me was the yeah. bullies came up on me one day. I had a best friend named Leonard. Mm. My moms would feed him every day. Mm. When it's lunchtime, she would give buy him a hero, quarter water, give us quarters to play the game. One day the bullies catch me and they ask him, yo, why you with this guy? He says, well, you know, Joey's my best friend. They said, if you don't beat him up with us, we're going to beat you up every day. Mm -hmm. And in an instant, he just started beating me up with them. That was one of the darkest days in my mm -hmm. life. So traumatic, I cried. And I kept saying, anybody ever look at me, anybody ever talk to me, I'm going to give it to them. Mm -hmm. And it's sad because of the environment, I turned into the worst bully in yeah. the world. And I did some horrible things to good and bad people that I'm not proud of. I mean, you talk about the regret because it's like, what do you feel like? Because like you said, you, you bullied people, good people and bad people. You know, I regret a lot mm -hmm. uh, growing up. And so mm -hmm. I pray all the time and so I give back to my community all the time whether it's the Muslim brothers and sisters in the Bronx that died in the fire we raised two million Puerto Rico hurricane we send a million pounds of food women's hygiene medicine I mean I try I you know I'm just preparing for the day I meet the man upstairs and I'll be like God I know I was terrible but look, I turned it around. <laughs> mm -hmm. Let's get to the music. In your late teens, you decide to get out of the drug game, devote yourself to rap. You started off with the Digging in the Crates crew, including Lord Finesse, Diamond D, Legendary Big L. Like, what made you think, I can make it rapping? Well, I always loved hip-hop. I was born in hip-hop since a baby. Uh, my brother, I looked up to him. He was a crate boy. So now we got computers, we got everything. Back in the days, DJs used to mix with vinyl. The three founding fathers. I mean, could you imagine like Alexander Graham Bell? You know, the, the, the yeah. pioneers, the fathers of hip hop is yeah. Grandmaster Flash, Cool mm -hmm. Herc, mm -hmm. and Africa Bambata. My brother was a crate boy for Grandmaster Flash. And so the crate boy is the one that so holds the... take a the... milk crate and it's filled with vinyl. So he had the honor of being the crate boy for Grandmaster Flash. So once they became successful, I said, oh, no, this is the way out. Mm. I got to talk to you about Big Pun. Obviously, he's a huge figure in rap, literally and figuratively. You were pivotal in his career and y'all were also best of friends like he died of a heart attack at 28 like do you have a favorite memory of big pun big pun man his birthday just passed recently and i put up a collage of pictures on instagram first thing i did was tell my wife look at these pictures he just has so much enjoyment you know pun grew up in the bronx so he knew all the legendary stories of joey crack Terror Squad, from the day I met him, he poured his heart out to me. He said, you're going to be my big brother? You mean those Terror Squad guys are now mine? I could tell them what to do? <laughs> and I was like, yes. <laughs> That's all he needed to hear. He was like, let's go. And I could see it in all the pictures. You know, he was 
way better than me. He was one of the greatest of all yeah. time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But still, he had that little, yeah, I got Joey with me. Mm. Crazy. I got to ask you, you know, you've been criticized a lot about the N-word. You talk a little bit about that in the book, about you're, you're not black, you're Puerto Rican. Now, in the book, you say you're trying to use it a lot less. You grew up using that word. Like, where where are you on that now? Are you taking it out of your vocabulary? No, I'm not taking it out of my book. I can't. Okay. Okay, I just can't. Okay. Even if I tried, I can't. I try to say it so much less now, but moments when I'm not thinking and I'm in my house, I say it to my son. I say it to my daughter. And so, you know, when I, when I use the N-word, how about this? If I use the N-word on any song, say Lean Back or whatever song, if I had to do a clean word for the radio, it would say brother instead of the N-word. Mm -hmm. Me, this, that, my brothers don't care. My brothers don't. So we always said it at a term of endearment. Yeah. You've had these huge hits in the music world. Now you're releasing this book. I understand you're trying to break into Hollywood. Like, are you, are you done making new music? What's next for Fat Joe? Like, what's the future for Fat Joe? You know, I caught the bug recently, but I think I'm done making music. Really? No more? Yeah, we got, I mean, I'll perform forever, but we got four TV shows this year ready. I'm just trying to elevate to the next level. I want to get it. I want to diversify the whole portfolio uh, in another way. You know, I got sneaker stores. I got different investments coming through. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be a big boy financially. Mm-hmm. And that is Fat Joe. He has a new memoir out, The Book of Jose. Oh. The Book of Jose. Yesterday's price is not today's price. It is not today's <laughs> price. <laughs> that is my mantra in life. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. She went that old thing back. Pretty young thing with that OG crack. Straight savage when I got my 50 on. Do the do say when it's a deli on. She got a man and he's stuck in the feds. Said he gonna kill me cause she up in my bed. We wear chains that are psyched the knocks. Only G7s when the flights depart. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. BJ Litterman writes our theme music. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the NPR Wine Club, bringing wines from around the world to members with NPR-inspired bottles like Weekend Edition Cabernet, available to adults 21 or older. More at nprwineclub.org. And from the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's coming up on 10 o'clock as Weekend Edition Sunday continues. And keep in mind, while Election Day is past, we are still making sense of what happened. Keep it here as NPR and WBUR follow the key issues. Keep listening to 90.9 WBUR for updates and what comes next. It is 52 degrees in Boston with some rain around today and temperatures in the mid-50s. Lows overnight in the mid-30s. Tomorrow and Tuesday, you can expect sunny skies and highs in the mid-40s. Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with a reminder that this public radio station is a collaboration. Many of my colleagues are working in the middle of the night to bring you the latest information when you get up in the morning. You don't have to do that, but you can contribute in other ways like donating your old car. Turn your old car into Morning Edition, all things considered, and all the voices you trust. There's never been a more important time to strengthen your station. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. I'm Midday Host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. News in Washington, D.C. This is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Some breaking news last night. Democrats will keep control of the U.S. Senate after Catherine Cortez Masto won the Nevada race. That means Vice President And with Kamala that, Harris only control of the House is now in question. Find out more about what this means for Democrats and Republicans who are looking for someone to blame for why the red wave they expected was a no-show. Plus, a look at the workers' strike at powerhouse publishing company HarperCollins. And we hear from Broadway composer Janine Tesori about her latest musical, Kimberly Akimbo. It's Sunday, November 13th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. A key Senate race called in Nevada has determined control of the Senate, NPR's Domenico Montanaro reports. The Associated Press has called the Nevada Senate race for Democratic incumbent Catherine Cortez Masto. It's a major development in these midterm elections and means Democrats will now retain control of the United States Senate. The race for control of the House, though, is still up for grabs. Republicans are on track for a takeover, but with likely a much smaller majority than they were anticipating. Remarkably, Democrats still have a path to holding their majority in the House, but they would need for several races where Republicans are currently leading to go their way. The House is not expected to be decided, likely for days, though, because of millions of ballots that are still left to count in California. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. The election results are giving President Biden a boost ahead of a key meeting in Bali. He's there now for the G20 summit, the latest stop in his Pacific region tour designed to shore up alliances. NPR's Emily Fang reports Biden left Cambodia this morning. Biden spoke to reporters after meeting with a group of East Asian world leaders. He was buoyed by news the Democratic Party will retain its majority in the Senate, giving him an edge when he meets China's leader Xi. I know I'm coming in stronger, but I don't need that. I know Xi Jinping. I've spent more time with any other world leader. I know him well. He knows me. There's no, uh, we have very little misunderstanding. We just got to figure out 
where the red lines are, what we what are the most important things to each of us. The meeting is highly anticipated as the U.S. and China face off in a superpower showdown over technology, human rights, and trade. Emily Fang, NPR News, Bali, Indonesia. Residents in Kherson are returning to life under Ukrainian control days after Russian troops were driven out. But fighting goes on in the greater region, with Russia conducting missile strikes and Ukrainian fighter jets hitting targets. NPR's Jason Bobian has more from central Ukraine. As Ukrainian troops carry out what they call stabilization operations in parts of Kherson abandoned by the departing Russian soldiers, airstrikes and artillery attacks continue along the new front line. Moscow's forces have been targeting electricity and water infrastructure, including the massive Kokovka Dam on the Dnipro River. In the center of Kherson City, locals are celebrating the return of their troops by passing out yellow and blue balloons and waving Ukrainian flags. President Vladimir Zelensky vowed to keep pressing forward with Ukraine's counteroffensive. Zelensky predicted that his soldiers will soon be welcomed with Ukrainian flags in Crimea, which was seized by Russia in 2014. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Kripvonitsky, Ukraine. The head of U.S. Customs and Border Protection, Chris Magnus, is stepping down, less than a year into the job. At the same time, apprehensions at the southern border have climbed to a record 2.3 million in the past year. That's fueled Republican attacks that the Biden administration's border policies are too lenient. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Senator Elizabeth Warren is applauding the Democrats' control of the U.S. Senate. In a New York Times op-ed, Warren points to this year's midterms as the best in 20 years for the party that controls the White House. And the Massachusetts Democrat credits President Biden for the victory. Warren also blames Donald Trump in part for the GOP's losses. The Massachusetts Department of Transportation begins installing wrong-way detection systems along some highway ramps starting this evening. MassDOT is beginning a pilot program to test the technology on 16 ramps across the state. Installation and testing is set to last nightly through Friday. Tomorrow, voters in Falmouth are deciding whether the police department needs to destroy any excess assault weapons. That's one of several articles to be considered at the annual fall town meeting. It's common practice by many police departments to sell used assault weapons to gun dealers. Backers of the proposed bylaw in Falmouth say it would prevent those weapons from reentering the open market. After some unusually warm temperatures in the 70s much of the past week, the weather is becoming more seasonable starting today. Bryce Williams is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Boston. And then for the upcoming week, we're going to be solidly in the 40s for pretty much all week. And we're also going to be having some uh, periodically breezy winds. So it'll, uh, the wind chills will be a little bit uh, chilly this coming week. Forecasters say temperatures could dip below freezing overnight Monday. It is 52 degrees now in Boston with some rain around. Lows tonight in the mid-30s and then tomorrow and Tuesday, sunshine and highs in the 40s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Huntington Theater. It's the last chance to catch the show critics are calling outstanding, superb, and a masterful production. August Wilson's Joe Turner's Come and Gone is available in person at the newly renovated Huntington Theater through today and digitally streaming through November 27th. Tickets at HuntingtonTheater.org. And the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Foundation 
Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning and thanks for joining us today. My goodness, what a week. The red wave that wasn't, the margins that look more like microscopic slivers, and key wins for Democrats last night in Nevada. We have NPR national political correspondent Mara Lyason with us now. Good morning, Mara. Good morning, Aisha. So, big night in Nevada. Tell us about those wins and where things stand now in Congress. Well, last night, Cisco Aguilar beat Republican Jim Marchant, who's an election denier, for the position of Secretary of State. That's the position that oversees the conducting of elections and vote counting. So far, no election denier has won a Secretary of State position in a battleground state. Also last night, Nevada Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto managed to keep her seat. So that means the Democrats will keep their majority in the Senate, even without the seat in Georgia, which will be determined in a runoff next month. We still have a lot of outstanding House races. Right now, it looks like the largest majority the Republicans could get in the House, based on the outstanding races that haven't been called, is a margin of nine seats, and it could be as small as three. That would be the lowest margin for an out party in the first midterm ever. There's still an outstanding governor's race in Arizona that's really important. Arizona is a battleground state. The Republican running for governor there, Carrie Lake, is an election denier who said that she wouldn't have certified Biden's win in Arizona in 2020. So if she wins, the question is, would she refuse to certify results she disagrees with in 2024? And so, you know, we'll get to Republicans in a minute, but were there any takeaways for Democrats for the results that they already have? They did much better than expected. Yes, they did. One of the problems Democrats faced going into this cycle was how to appeal to white non-college educated voters. Several candidates, Democratic candidates, did that. John Fetterman is an example. Kept on wearing his hoodie and shorts as he campaigned in rural counties. He said he was for fracking. He was for funding, not defunding the police. And he did win over some new voters while keeping his college educated base. So what does this mean for the Republican Party? There's no doubt that Republicans lost because it was such a stunning setback given how they were expecting gains to get double-digit majorities in the House. This was the worst performance by an opposition party in 20 years in a midterm. Democrats were expecting them to get double-digit majorities in the House. They also were expecting to win the Senate. But look, winning the House even by one seat is a victory, but that tiny margin is going to make the job of whoever becomes the Speaker of the House just miserable because it's so hard to keep a majority that small in line. Republicans themselves consider this a complete debacle. The hunt is on now for who to blame for this disappointing result. You know, last night, Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri, who is a Trump loyalist, tweeted, quote, the old party is dead Time to bury it and build something new. So I think there's a lot of turmoil ahead for Republicans. Yeah, that's very stark imagery. I mean, so and and on, on following up on that point, I got to ask you about expected expected announcements from President Biden, possibly and former President Donald Trump. Yep, we've heard from both of them. President Biden said at his post-election press conference that he intends to run. Donald Trump has been teasing that he's going to make this big announcement on the 15th from Mar-a-Lago. 
And as usual, Trump is a fraught subject for the Republican Party. You know, the Republican establishment, including many who've supported Trump in the past, would like Trump to be in the rearview mirror, but instead he's still on the hood of the car. <laughs> yeah, hang and it on. They, they want to move on. They're not critical of him for his positions or because he's bad for American democracy, but because he looks like a loser now. They'd also prefer that he not announce while there's still an outstanding race in Georgia because he tends to turn off independents and suburban women who showed this week that they prefer the mainstream, not the extreme. That's NPR's Mara Eliasson. Thank you so much, Mara. You're welcome. Well, I think if they win, I should get all the credit. And if they lose, I should not be blamed at all. That's former President Trump commenting about his midterm endorsements on the cable outlet News Nation. But usually what would happen is when they do well, I won't be given any credit. And if they do badly, they will blame everything on me. That was on Election Day. Republicans underperformed their expectations. And yes, there are fingers pointing to Trump, who is rumored to be close to announcing another presidential bid. Liam Donovan is a veteran of Republican campaigns, now at the lobbying firm Bracewell LLP. And he joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Aisha. Look, this is just the latest time that Republican officials have seemed to start pointing fingers at Donald Trump or expressed a desire to move on from him. How much weight do you put on the current criticism? Look, I think the skepticism is warranted in the sense that, as you said, we've been here before, at least among Republican elites establishment. I think the difference here is uh, what you've seen from former President Trump in each of his elections and really each election that Republicans have had since the Trump era began was they beat expectations at some level. In 2016, obviously he wasn't supposed to win. In 2018, when Democrats did actually have a good cycle, he was able to say, well, Republicans picked up Senate seats. And so in 2020, he beat the spread. Obviously, Republicans did not win the presidency, but they did better than they were supposed to do according to the expectations. So I think we're kind of full circle to that moment where we finally get the bad election results as a result in part of President Trump, you know, affecting Republicans and at least having people rethink whether he is a net positive in this party going forward. Now, do the voters agree? The question remains unsettled. That is a key question, is whether the base feels the same way. You, you do have some leading conservative voices, the New York Post, the Wall Street Journal editorial page, hinting at maybe the GOP should start looking at Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Others are looking at Glenn Youngkin, Virginia's governor. But, you know, then you have House GOP conference chair Elise Stefanik, flat out endorsed Trump on Friday. She's trying to get ahead of the pack. So if Trump does announce soon, what do you think that does to the rest of the GOP field for 2024? This was probably going to happen either way, but it was expected to happen in a triumphant moment for President Trump. He was expected to take credit for this big wave that, that rippled across the country. And of course, that didn't happen. So instead of doing this from a position of strength, he's obviously doing this from a position of weakness. And I think the interesting thing is if he does indeed announce this coming week, that is with a no longer climactic, but still important uh, for him and for Republicans runoff election in Georgia with his handpicked candidate. And it will reflect on his political strength in, in a number of different ways. So I think he's taking a risk there. I don't know that it affects the immediate term outcome of, of the 2024 jockeying because these guys are going to wait and see what happens with him. The potential Trump competitors are keeping their powder dry at the moment. 
when we talk about the results of Tuesday's race, the thing about that is in the primary, you are trying to talk to the base and Trump, he still has pull with the base. That's how he was able to put his thumb on a scale and get, you know, the candidates he wanted in some of these races like Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania for the Senate race or Herschel Walker in Georgia for that Senate race. What motivates the Republican base these days? If it's not Trump, is it the Supreme Court? We're in a post-Roe world. Well, one thing I will say, I mean, all these factors and dynamics predate President Trump, and in some ways, Trump is the culmination of those dynamics. Republicans have lost the Senate in 2010 and 2012 because they put up poor candidates. Um, The difference here is that President Trump... I think locked these fields into questionable candidates. You had people that might have been the strongest staying out because they didn't want to go anywhere near this. You had a number of strong governors who might have come in and easily won these seats that stayed out. So I think he's somebody that people don't necessarily want to grapple with. But I think the things they want, it's a fighter, somebody with the Trump attitude. I think they also want somebody who can win. In 2016, he seemed like the guy that could win. Now, the question is, after he lost in 2020, and he seems to have lost in 2022, can he really present as the winner in 2024. And I think that's the best argument that a DeSantis or a Youngkin or a non-Trump Republican candidate has. He's not a winner anymore. He's a loser. You need to elect me. Are there any presidential politics going on with Florida Senator Marco Rubio calling to wait a bit before voting on the Senate Republican leader, a position that's long been held by Kentucky Senator Mitch McConnell? And we should note that you served as a campaign aide under McConnell's leadership. And it's not just Rubio. Some other senators as as well said that there should be a pause before voting for the next Senate Republican leader. I think it's interesting because I think had Republicans had the sort of night they maybe were expecting, I think you would have gotten the same sort of chorus coming from, I mean, as it's been reported, I think Rick Scott, the NRS, current NRSC chair, was intending to make such a bid, and indeed he is pushing for a similar delay. I think the Rubio effort comes from a different place. It's coming from a place of a disappointment. And so if you read his statements, it's very much geared toward, okay, what went right in Florida and what went wrong nationally? And we need to take a time out and take a look at that. You know, I think it certainly is a, an effort to distinguish himself and, and, you know, speak out as a voice that's kind of being obscured by the fact that everybody's talking about DeSantis and in the context of Florida, but I think people forget that Rubio did win by 16 against a really strong candidate who actually outspent him there. So I think it's a way to make your voice heard as somebody who wants to be a leader in this party one way or another. That's former GOP campaign strategist Liam Donovan. Thank you so much. Thanks, Aisha. The U.S. craves meat. On average, an American eats 220 pounds of it per year. And slaughtering enough animals to satisfy this carnivorous demand emits a lot of greenhouse gas. But one scientist has figured out a greener and more humane way to produce meat. He grows it. It is chicken. It's just chicken grown directly from animal cells in a very clean, controlled environment. Tomorrow morning on Morning Edition, NPR's Allison Aubrey takes us inside his lab. Listen live on your radio or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. You're listening to NPR News.
Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Tomorrow at 11 o'clock on 90.9 WBUR, it's the Radio Boston Friendsgiving celebration. Tiffany Faison and some of Boston's best chefs join Tiziana Deering to share food and the stories behind the recipes. Dig in tomorrow at 11 a.m. here on 90.9 WBUR. It's 1018 and ahead on Weekend Edition, the effort to revitalize the Black Business District in Jackson, Mississippi. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, flavorful modern Latin American fare, catering office holiday parties and gatherings in greater Boston, LaCuchara.com, and the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com slash careers. I'm Amy Held with these headlines. Democrats will hang on to their slim Senate majority after Nevada Senator Catherine Cortez Masto defeated her Republican opponent. The House, however, remains up for grabs with Republicans maintaining a narrow lead. President Biden continues his Pacific region trip intended to shore up alliances. He left Cambodia for Indonesia, where he is set to meet with China's President Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the G20 summit. Ukrainian troops are carrying out what they call stabilization operations in the southern Kherson region after pushing Russian troops out of the city. Airstrikes and artillery attacks continue along the new front line. Moscow's forces are targeting electricity and water infrastructure. Amy Held, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from ProQuest, whose website Black Freedom Struggle in the U.S. curates 2,000 documents related to the fight for civil and human rights. Open to all at ProQuest.com slash go slash black freedom. And from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. The crypto market was hot just a year ago. Not anymore. Bitcoin's value has plummeted. And now there's been a possible hack of one of the largest crypto companies, FTX, which just filed for bankruptcy. NPR's David Gurr joins us now to talk about this crypto winter. Good morning, David. Morning, Aisha. Okay, so this is a lot going on. Like, what does this all mean for investors? Well, nothing good, and it's getting worse. The company's new CEO saying there was unauthorized access to assets on the site. The collapse of FTX plunged us even deeper into what's being characterized as a crypto winter, this deep downturn. And it all happened very quickly. It was a fast and startling fall for a company that was really a central part of the crypto ecosystem. FTX built this huge platform for trading cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, recently valued at more than $30 billion. Sam Bankman-Fried started it, built it into this behemoth. I'll note he also amassed a huge personal fortune. Well, about a week ago, one of Bankman-Fried's rivals raised questions about FTX's finances, then publicly withdrew his assets from the site. That caused alarm, caused panic. Others tried to pull their money out, but FTX couldn't pay its customers what they're owed. So now Bankman-Fried is out of a job, and FTX has filed for bankruptcy protection and brought in this new CEO. 
What does this mean for crypto more broadly? Well, in that short period of time, the value of Bitcoin fell by about 20%. FTX is the latest domino to fall, but the biggest one. There's been a series of crypto companies that have gone bankrupt this year. Some well-known cryptocurrencies have lost almost all their value. This compounds that. Joseph Grunfest used to be an SEC commissioner, and now he's a professor of law and business at Stanford. I think you're headed towards a crypto ice age. It's going to be difficult for the sector to regain confidence. You're going to need much more transparency. The FTX was a private company, so we didn't have a whole lot of insight into its books. And by design, crypto exists outside the traditional banking system, so there's no lender of last resort if something goes haywire. Now, Grenfest says we've seen some transparency from the heads of crypto companies. When it comes to code, they're willing to pull back the curtain a little bit and explain how their products work. But what we can't see, or we don't have a good sense of Aisha, is whether they're legit. Are they run like other financial firms that deal with billions of investors' dollars? That seems like a big deal. How did we get here? Um, weren't we all just seeing all these crypto commercials during the last Super Bowl for Bitcoin and Dogecoin? Yeah, and that was all by design. Companies like FTX were spending millions of dollars on marketing, buying ads, but also signing endorsement deals. FTX bought the naming rights for the basketball arena in Miami. Another crypto company bought the naming rights for the basketball arena in Los Angeles. There was a lot of euphoria around crypto, but you have to remember at the beginning of the year, most of us were feeling pretty good about the economy. And it wasn't just cryptocurrency that was trading at or near record highs. So were stocks. Of course, all that changed with the persistence of high inflation. And as the Federal Reserve started hiking interest rates to get that under control, for so long, Bitcoin backers said the cryptocurrency would be an inflation hedge, an asset that would go up in value during a period of high inflation. In fact, that hasn't been the case. The value of cryptocurrencies, which are pretty tightly correlated with each other, have fallen alongside other speculative assets like tech stocks. Right now, amid concern about a potential recession, investors just don't have much of an appetite for taking risk. So when is this crypto winter likely to end? None of the experts I talked to know or would even hazard a guess. What they're watching for, they said, is how the crypto market changes in light of FTX's collapse. Joseph Ayub is a digital asset strategist with Citigroup. The last year has been quite damaging for the crypto industry, and I think it spells the need for a lot of changes. Ayub and others emphasize crypto is still very young. We measure it in years, not in decades, but... There's been a conversation about regulation for most of its young life. So far, we haven't seen Congress take action on comprehensive legislation calling for more crypto regulation. We've seen regulators use their enforcement power to crack down on bad actors. But Aisha, this could be the event that opens the door to new regulatory policy. NPR's David Gurra, thank you so much. Thank you. HarperCollins Publishers is one of the biggest book publishers in the country. They put out best-selling novels like Madeline Miller's The Song of Achilles, popular self-help books like a book we'll call The Subtle Art of Not Giving a F-Word by Mark Manson, and important books for young adults like Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give. But some of the workers at the company have long been frustrated with low wages and the lack of diversity on staff, so now they're on strike. NPR's Andrew Limbong has more. On Thursday, the HarperCollins Union Instagram page posted a short video of workers and supporters marching in front of the publisher's New York City offices. Treat your workers like you should! 
It's been a long negotiation process for the approximately 250 union members. This includes people working in publicity, design, marketing, and more. All the parts of putting out a book that you usually don't see. Negotiations started in December, and they've been working without a contract since April. Which opened us up actually to the ability to go on strike because we have a no-strike, no-lockout clause in our contract. That's Stephanie Gurdon, an associate editor at HarperCollins Children's Books and a shop steward for the union, taking a quick break from the picket line to give me a call. Gurdon says the main thing they're demanding is better wages. The minimum salary is $45,000. I was hired in six years ago at $33,000. None of that is, a, is an amount you can live on in New York City, and the company is pretty adamant that people should be close enough to commute in at least like one day a week. So the union is demanding pay starts at 50000 a year. The publishing industry is known for not paying great salaries, and low pay makes it hard to attract employees who don't have a financial cushion beneath them. According to a recent Publishers Weekly survey, the median salary for men is 80000 while for women, it's a little over $62,000. That same year, HarperCollins' parent company, News Corp, boasted in its Q4 earnings report that HarperCollins was bringing in record profits, though the book boom of the early pandemic has evened out recently. We've been bending over backwards to try to find compromises in terms of negotiations uh, that would allow us to settle without going on strike, but they're not interested in making any economic moves, and that's really where where the pain point is for us. HarperCollins didn't offer anyone up for an interview, but did send a statement that said the company has agreed to a number of proposals, but, quote, we are disappointed an agreement has not been reached and will continue to negotiate in good faith. Gurdon says they'll stay on strike for as long as it takes. Andrew Limbong, NPR News. Much of the fighting in Ukraine has been defined by deadly games of hide-and-seek. Troops hide under the cover of trees from reconnaissance drones that signal to the other side where to fire. Both Ukraine and Russia have conducted the war this way on the flat terrain throughout the country's south and east. But as NPR's Nathan Rott reports, the coming winter is forcing both sides to change tactics. For most of the last eight months, this is what the fighting has looked like near Ukraine's front lines. A group of Ukrainian soldiers, part of a territorial defense unit that calls itself the Legendary Battalion, gathers at the back of a running pickup in a grove of roadside trees under the cover of yellowing leaves. Three long gray rockets rest in the truck bed. Badger, a nickname, screws little silver cones to the top of each. What are these guys? Fire shot. Fire shot. <laughs> Percussion caps in place, the rockets are lifted and loaded into a launching platform that's been welded to the back of another camouflage pickup, nestled even further under the trees. A soldier using the nom de guerre playbook is directing this strike. What are you guys targeting right now? Uh, right now, it's um, uh, three lion. We're sitting uh, Russian troops. A tree line with Russian troops, about eight kilometers to the south of where we are now. We have guys in this uh, village, and they're looking at everything. 
and they give us the target. Intelligence, eyes and ears on the ground, informing the Ukrainians where to attack. Another soldier walks up and explains that we're about to drive even closer to the front line, well within the range of Russian artillery, to fire. So once they launch these rockets, we need to get back in our car and leave the area immediately before the Russians can fire back. A few minutes later, we park along a narrow two-lane road and get out next to a field of dead black sunflowers. Soldiers climb into the bed of the truck a hundred yards ahead and adjust the launcher. A pause and... Songbirds fly away as the rockets jet south in a plume of smoke. All right, we're out of here. We get in our vehicle and drive quickly out of artillery range to the north. This long distance game of cat and mouse could soon shift because winter is starting and the conditions for this kind of fighting are changing. At a military base in the city of Krivi Ri, Playboy explains how winter will make this type of fighting much more difficult to conduct. Because uh, you don't have nothing to hide and uh, you stay in, in the open space and it's so much easier to find you. Artillery and vehicle tracks will be easier to see in the snow. Leafless trees will offer less cover. Effectively war in the winter depends of effective reconnaissance and effective artillery. Who will be more effectively in this part? Uh, that one will be much better in the battlefield. This is something leadership of Ukraine's armed forces is stressing as the winter months approach. At a training facility outside of the city of Dnipro in south-central Ukraine, Master Sergeant Oleksandr Honcharuk, a member of Ukraine's infantry, says winter requires much more stealth. You have to move with more secrecy, a bit faster, he says. You have to move with your eyes open, more work with drones, more observing, more planning. Winter warfare is not new to Russia and Ukraine. They've been fighting in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine since 2014. Frederick Kagan with the Institute for the Study of War, a D.C.-based think tank, says that's important for Ukraine's supporters, namely NATO and the U.S., to remember, especially, he says, as some military analysts predict a slowdown in fighting as temperatures drop. We need to get that model out of our heads because that's not historically the way war in this part of the world works. Winter typically favors the aggressor. And Kagan says right now, that's Ukraine. I do think that there will be another window for Ukrainian mechanized counteroffensive operations if there is a hard freeze that solidifies the ground. Counteroffensives that will continue to be dependent on Western aid, weapons and cold weather gear. At frontline areas in the country's southeast and windswept north, Ukrainian soldiers are making their own preparations, stocking up on firewood, to be stored in deep trenches they've carved into the earth. Dimitro, with the Kharkiv Region Territorial Defense, says this is a position they've taken back from Russia, so they're preparing in case they decide to return. So that's the first line of defense, so if um, any other uh, tries, new attacks here come, that's the first line that we can spot them and protect. The wind gusts and a soldier beckons us to join him in a nearby trench. 
Добрый день. Добрый день. Wood planks are laid over the mud to keep feet clean. The wind inside the trench is a little less cutting, far more so in a hut they've built underground. It's a lot nicer in here. Oleg and Igor, two territorial defenders who up until eight months ago worked as a butcher and an electrician, respectively, welcome us with coffee. How are you feeling about the upcoming winter? <laughs> A stove here, stove there, you know, everywhere is warm. I will show you around and you'll see it's not a problem at all. Oleg shows off cold weather gear, coveralls and coats, sleeping bags and blankets donated to the territorial defense. A bench in the hut is covered in grapes and pears given to them by local farmers. They both light cigarettes and I ask if they think winter helps them or Russia. It's our land. Uh, that's our motherland. It helps us. At least that's their hope. Nathan Rott, NPR News, Kherson region, Ukraine. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. There's one world leader who is bound to receive a near rock star welcome when he arrives at the UN Climate Change Summit in Egypt this week. Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva was invited shortly after he won Brazil's presidential election last month. Lula helped roll back destruction of the Amazon rainforest during his previous stint as Brazil's president, so his return to the world stage is being hailed by environmentalists. Lula will have his work cut out for him when he takes office in January. Deforestation in Brazil reached a 15-year high under outgoing President Jair Bolsonaro. John Otis is in the Brazilian city of Manaus on the banks of the Amazon River. Good morning, John. Good morning, Aisha. John, so how does Lula plan to protect the Amazon rainforest? Well, in his first speech as president-elect last month, Lula promised to aim for zero deforestation over the next four years. And one of the ways that he wants to do that is to beef up law enforcement and government agencies that protect the environment. And this is key because these agencies were just totally gutted under Bolsonaro, the outgoing president. Bolsonaro also allowed for a kind of free-for-all of mining, ranching, and farming in the jungle. And all of this led to this huge spike in deforestation. So to turn things around, Lula is likely to announce several other measures at the climate summit this week. For example, he's expected to name an environmental czar for Brazil, and that's sort of like the post John Kerry holds in the Biden administration. And Lula may also announce a strategic alliance with Indonesia and the Democratic Republic of Congo. And the idea there is that by negotiating together, these three countries may be able to secure larger donations and carbon credits from the global north in exchange for preserving their jungles. So Lula's environmental record is undeniably better than Bolsonaro's, but he's not beyond criticism, right? Yeah, that's correct. Lula, he first served as president of Brazil between 2003 and 2010. And during that period, the rate of deforestation did drop dramatically. 
However, the Amazon is home to more than 30 million Brazilians and they have to be able to make a living. And so Lula, when he was president, he was making a lot of concessions to farmers and ranchers and promoting commercial activities in the Amazon. His administration also approved the Belo Monte Dam. Now that's one of the largest hydroelectric dams in the world and it's wreaked havoc on some parts of the jungle. He's rejected calls to transition away from fossil fuels. So Lula's a leftist, but he's by no stretch of the imagination nation and environmental radical. Expectations on this one leader are certainly high. Like, can Lula deliver? Yeah, he's got a lot of challenges here. I mean, I was just recently out on a, a jungle highway here in the Amazon. And in some places, it was really hard to breathe because there was so much smoke from farmers and ranchers who were burning down the forest. So it really is going to be tough. And the other problem here is that even as the climate crisis gets worse, Brazil politically is growing a lot more conservative. Lots of people in the Amazon voted for Bolsonaro. And so there's going to be a lot of resistance to any kind of a Brazilian Green New Deal. On the other hand, the international community, as we mentioned, they're going to be pulling for Lula. Uh, Norway has already said it's going to resume making payments to Brazil in exchange for protecting the jungle. That's a deal that was suspended under the Bolsonaro government. And to further bolster this kind of cooperation, Lula has also suggested that the next UN climate conference could be held in Brazil. That was John Otis speaking to us from the Amazon city of Manaus. Thank you so much, John. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The head of Boston's police union says contract negotiations with the mayor's office are stalled, he tells the Boston Globe. The Patrolman's Association may now seek arbitration. The office of Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says negotiations are continuing. During her campaign, Wu promised to enact police reforms with a new contract. Worcester is reviewing its school safety plans. The Telegram and Gazette reports the district has hired a consulting company to audit safety procedures and review emergency response plans. District officials have reported at least two dozen emergency calls from schools this year for a wide variety of issues. In sports, tonight at the Garden, the Bruins host the Vancouver Canucks. It is 52 degrees in Boston, some rain around today, temperatures in the mid-50s. Tonight, lows in the mid-30s. Tomorrow and Tuesday, sunshine, highs in the mid-40s. You are part of the WBUR community, and that's why you're invited to our next virtual community advisory board meeting. It is Wednesday, November 16th, from 4 to 6.30 p.m., You'll find details at wbur.org slash open meetings. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Beacon Hill Books and Cafe with programming for book lovers of all ages in a 19th century townhouse in the heart of historic Beacon Hill. Now open at 71 Charles Street. Next time on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the dramatic story of a teenager who escaped from Auschwitz to tell the world about the horrors of the Holocaust. I mean, he, he staged multiple escapes before Auschwitz and very dramatically actually after Auschwitz in his later life. He escaped and escaped and escaped. Jonathan Friedland's book, The Escape Artist, next time on the New Yorker Radio Hour. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 
25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us today is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Good to talk to you, Will. Good morning, Aisha. So, Will, could you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it was a toughish one. It came from Simeon Siegel of Brooklyn. I said, name a punctuation mark found on a computer keyboard. Somewhere inside this, insert a word for what this punctuation mark may be part of or what it may represent. And I said, the result will be a 10-letter word associated with painting. What words are these? Well, the punctuation mark is a colon. That can represent a ratio, and if you stick ratio inside colon, you get coloration, which is a term in painting. This week was a, a, a tough one. It gave some of our listeners a bit of a challenge, but coming out on top, though, is Vandana Bajaj of Highland Park, New Jersey. Congratulations and welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Aisha. So how long have you been playing the puzzle, and how did you get this one? <laughs> You know, I'm kind of a newbie. I've only been playing for a couple months, and this is only the second submission I've made. So wow. I must have beginner's luck. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And so you're also trying to get the a lottery ticket or something today, right? <laughs> <laughs> and there's listeners everywhere shaking their yeah. fists at their radio. <laughs> They've been doing it for years. Oh, my goodness. So how did you get this one? Because I, I could not have come up with this. So I basically was just staring at my computer keyboard for inspiration of punctuation marks. And then I decided to think backwards from the word painting and seeing what words come to mind that deal with painting. And I kept thinking color, color. So then I thought, okay, let me focus on the colon and the comma because they'll start with T-O. And I kind of worked with both of those. And with colon, I thought, okay, colons are used with analogies and with lists and with ratios. So then I got coloration. Wow, wow. That is great. All right, Vandana, are you ready to play the puzzle? I'm ready. All right, take it away, Will. All right, Vandana and Aisha, I'm going to read you some sentences. In each one, find two words that sound like two other words that are synonyms. For example, if I said, I can pair an apple too, you would say pair and two, because those words in the sentence sounds like P-A-I-R and T-W-O. Here's number one. I stubbed my toe running down the hall. Is it toe and hall? Toe and hall, yeah, T-O-W and H-A-U-L. Those are synonyms. Here's number two. How much do the shutters on the manor weigh? How much do the shutters on the manor weigh? So this would be um, manor and weigh? That's it, yeah. M-A-N-N-E-R and W-A-Y are synonyms. Here's your next one. Winnie Mandela voted nay. Uh, Winnie and nay? Right, the sounds of a horse. Here's your next one. In Korea, a pail costs three won. 
In Korea, a pail costs three won. Pail and won? Pail and won, right. The spy was sent on a mission to the Oder River. Oder? Yes. And scent. Scent is it, yeah, C-E-N-T. And here's your last one. Dad went to the grocery to buy some chow. Chow and... You say chow, and what else would you say? Bye. You say bye as in B-U-Y-E. Wow. You got it. Yeah, yeah. I think I twisted your brain yes. today. Yeah, that was tricky. <laughs> <laughs> But you did an awesome, awesome job. Um, so for playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Vandana, what member station do you listen to? That would be WNYC. That's Vandana Bajaj of Highland Park, New Jersey. Thank you for playing the puzzle. Thank you, Aisha. All right, Will, what's next week's challenge? Yes, it was sent to me independently by two listeners, Steve Baggish and Neville Fogarty, so I'd like to credit them both. Think of two well-known companies with two-syllable names, starting with J and D, that's D as in dog, whose names rhyme. And one of these companies was founded in the last 10 years. What companies are these? So again, two well-known companies with two-syllable names, starting with J and D, whose names rhyme. And one of these companies is from the last 10 years. What companies are these? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries is Thursday, November 17th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. High school can be tough, especially if you look like you're 72. That's Kimberly Lavaco's problem. She's at the center of the new Broadway musical Kimberly Akimbo, played by Victoria Clark. First wish. I want to be a model for a day, a famous fashion muse in a black Dior cocktail dress and a pair of Jimmy Choo's. She has a rare aging disorder so that she appears to the world to be in her 70s, but she's actually, when she starts the show, she's 15. That's composer Janine Tesori giving us the details on Kimberly. She lives with her mother, Patty, who is a hypochondriac. We find out that she, there's nothing on Patty that isn't bandaged or taped up. Um, her father, Buddy, her Aunt Deborah, who sort of reappears. Um, you have what we call the teen quartet. So there are four teens in high school that you know, they are a part of Kimberly's world. A 1990s world of New Jersey. It includes ice skating, a love interest who makes anagrams, plus check fraud, a stolen tuba, and a dark family secret. 
Janine Tesori is the Tony-winning composer behind Shrek, the musical, Thoroughly Modern Millie, and Fun Home. Kimberly Akimbo is her second collaboration with the playwright David Lindsay Abair, and it opened on Broadway just a few days ago. She says the story of a teenager dealing with a rapidly aging body has a certain appeal. Yeah, I think yes. I think bodies are complicated. <laughs> yes, very complicated. Look, and I think, you know, we're socialized as girls to not trust our bodies, not protect our bodies. And so this show for me encapsulates so many things I'm interested in as aging. You know, I'm 61 on opening night, and I still feel in so many ways 12 years old. And at the same time, your body in the in the idea of that you get one body, mm. it's it's interesting how we pretend that we don't. Mm. We try to modify it and amplify it. I'll do all of these things to it, but it's it's true. You have this one, and I think for... Kimberly, as a teenager growing up, and her parents, they're very theatrical in life, especially when they're trying to push reality away. And they're not, they're trying not to deal. They're doing the best they can. But the situation is their child is not going to be alive for a long time. And instead of dealing with that, they create other things to upstage that pain. When you write for a musical, you are dealing with emotion, right? And this takes place in a high school, which is full of emotion. So I would think that's very fertile ground for a musical composer. Absolutely. In teenage years, everything feels like it's do or die. Everything Mm -hmm. is huge. And I remember in eighth grade, someone passed a note about me, and I went home to my mother, and I said, I'm never going back there again. And I was not kidding. I just thought, my life is over. Oh, what was what was the no? It was just really mean and nasty. You know, this was the 70s. It was like some you some boy or something, something so like looking back now. But I remember at that moment, it, I, I just thought, oh, my life is completely over. I'll have to retire. I'll become an accountant if I'm lucky. Um, what you're saying, it's absolutely true. There are teenagers who are dealing with a lot of things. And Kim is inside this teenage world because she is 15. She is 16. But um, she isn't. It's both. Were you able to, like, tap into some of that childhood writing these songs? And were you into show choir or anything like that? Because... Oh, (laughs) hell no. I played... Look, I I started playing when I was three, and I played all rhythm stuff. Like, Mm -hmm. I played everything that I could get my hands on, from Carole King to Stevie Wonder to Billy Preston. But I also listened to Shostakovich and Kavaleski, and I had this amazing teacher who said, like, you can get to know people through music. That is the portal. That is the key. Do not judge it. Because if you judge it, you stop listening. And if you stop listening as a musician, you're sunk. I'm like seven, so I'm like, what the hell is he talking about? (laughs) The piano was the way in for Mm -hmm. storytelling to me in through theater. I didn't even really see a musical until I was 18. Oh, wow. And so how did you get into this? When did you realize this was a lane for you? Well, I saw... Um, I saw Lena Horne mm. and Lady and Her Music, and I saw this woman named um, Miss Linda Twine, who became a mentor of mine. I had never seen anything like it in my life, and I just thought, what is this? It felt like theater was waiting for me, and then I caught up to it. 
So, I mean, I would see shows 13 times. I would rush. I would second act. I would sneak in. I just wanted to understand what had happened to me that day in that theater that I had watched these people tell this story. And it felt like the world had stopped. And I wanted to be part of that. Going back to Kimberly Akimbo, the main character, Kimberly, she's dealing with a fatal disease. You have the kids dealing with alcoholism in their family, abandonment, loss of loved ones. And how do you approach that and balance all of that with with the music? Well, we wanted to balance it with humor because Mm -hmm. it all comes from David Lindsay Barra's tone of humor, which is the humor of coping. You know, um, what Kimberly has is what we have, which is we age. And then we age out. There's a, a song in the show called No One Gets a Second Time Around. And that is true. You know, even if you, whatever you believe, your time here has a, a little Pepperidge Farm expiration date. And it's really about, you know, it's what the ancient Greeks called chronos. Chronos is a measured time. And kairos is the quality of the time that you're here. And what we're hoping is that people sort of laugh and their heart aches a a little bit and at the end they realize like right this is it my brother played with nunchucks i liked playing chess my brother broke the knickknacks one of the characters who i really loved was seth he becomes the kind of love interest for Kimberly. And he has this song, Good Kid, where he's going through all of these heavy things he's dealing with, but also does he want to stay on the straight and narrow? Does he want to do some things that could get him in some big trouble? Like, And he's grappling with all that. So when you're sitting down to put that together, what is the process for that? That was a song where we watch a young man grapple with doing the wrong thing for the right reason. And so much of being young, I mean, I, th- I think that part is your brain isn't quite formed, you know, isn't formed no, really No, 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 it, it is not completely formed at all. Right. <laughs> Mine is still forming. The good kid, the good boy, the good one. So you have these young people making big decisions should I do this thing? Mm-hmm. I know it's wrong. I've been good my whole life, and, you know, his brother's not so good, and he is good, so we all have been there on one of those sides. You know, there's always one person in your family who is the misbehaving one, and so we were just interested in that for Seth. So much of this show, it is, as you said, about embracing the life that we have. Is that a message that you think the world needs more of? I do think so. I think it's been a long time since the world has experienced something at the same time, in the same way, with different tools in which to, you know, you you could see pictures of people who seem to be having a very fine time during the pandemic. And those of us were in our apartments with dogs and children and and a thousand feet, you know, everybody had a certain kind of time, but everybody was stopped by it at the same time. But also the fragility you know, there was so much loss. Um, the generation I grew up in, we lost so many friends in the 80s and 90s. And um, I think that understanding that, you know, grab the joy where you can and also care for each other because there are people behind you. So I think it's just about this moment in time, about looking at life with a, a little bit um, more more joy, more empathy, 
more fun, but also to treasure it. That's Janine Tesori, a musical composer of the new Broadway musical, Kimberly Akimbo. Thank you so much for joining us. It was so great to be here. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. This is NPR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fairbank & Perry Goldsmiths in Concord. Owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. Direct Tire & Auto Service, a dealer alternative. Your local mechanic and tire dealer, serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. And Mass Poetry's Evening of Inspired Leaders, tomorrow. Inspiring words from Bill McKibben, Dr. Jennifer Childs Roshak, and more, with host Ruba Shinoy. MassPoetry.org. I'm Christopher Leiden. Next time on Open Source, politics is a form of panic attack, and all through it, a search and an argument around new right republicanism, class and culture warfare, and a rethink of Uncle Sam's role in the world. The new right is next on Open Source, today at 2, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.